a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Last week, we told you about the case of Hope Masters, but her story is so big we had to break it into two. So, if you haven't listened to the first part, now's the time to put this one on pause and go check it out. I promise it'll be worth it. When we left off, Hope Masters was trapped in an impossible situation. She's been arrested for the murder of her boyfriend, Bill Ashlock, but the real killer has been keeping her under his watch. Taylor Wright has made Hope more than just a victim. Little does she know, he's roped her into his conspiracy to cover up Bill's murder. He's kept her kids and her parents close by as collateral in case she turns on him. And more than a week into this saga, Hope hasn't broken her word. Despite all the warning signs, she trusts him. She believes Taylor Wright is the only man who can protect her from the nebulous crime outfit known only as the organization. But now that the FBI is involved, the smoke and mirrors that Taylor has constructed are beginning to collapse. Hope is realizing that he's not who he says he is. His name is G. Daniel Walker. He's a fugitive on a crime spree. In the four years since he escaped from prison, he's traveled from state to state, stealing identities, staying in expensive hotels, and eating luxurious meals. He's been living the high life on the lamb. And the details of his history are a roadmap for what's to come. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. 1968 Officer Sven Jungren, or Gus, as his sometimes partner Bob Swalwell calls him, is one of only four cops patrolling the highway that day. Now, Gus wouldn't normally pull a car over for the, such a minor infraction, but the radio in his patrol car is new and he kind of just like wants to test it out. So he throws on his sirens and he waves the green 68 Chevy to the side of the road. And the guy driving it seems to be this clean-cut businessman in a full suit and tie. And Gus tells him, you know, hey, your car's missing a license plate. But what Gus doesn't know is that this is actually a stolen car. But the man that he's pulled over is incredibly cooperative. And he strikes up a conversation with Gus. And the guy is so nice and friendly that Gus invites him to sit in the front seat of his patrol car while he radios in his license number. And the man agrees. And just as an anecdote, I've actually been in the situation where I was pulled over and was invited into the front seat of a patrol car. And I obliged because I really didn't want a ticket, but it did make me wildly uncomfortable. But it seems like this guy that he's pulled over, it's worth it for him. Yeah, he seems happy to be sitting up there with him shooting the shit with Gus uh, while he calls in the plate number. And while Gus is waiting for a response, this well-dressed fellow tells him all about his business. He's in advertising, and he gives Gus his card. An ad man? I mean, wait a minute. Is this Mad Men? Wait, is it John Hamm that he's pulled over? <laughs> you wish. You <laughs> do. I do. I think this would be a very different ending, but it's not. Yeah, Gus tells uh, this man, though, since he's an ad man, about the marina that he's just bought an interest in. And the man suggests, hey, I could actually help you advertise it. Can I go grab something from my car? And since Gus still hasn't heard back from radioing this in, he says, yeah, sure, go ahead. Gus watches the man through his rearview mirror, and then he looks away. He's not really worried about this guy, so he's there just minding his own business. He doesn't even look when the passenger door opens to the patrol car, and bang, Gus is shot in the head. Bob Swalwell arrives on the scene as fast as he can. This is his first day on the detective unit. 
and his friend just got shot. Ugh, I feel for this guy. That's a rough first day of work. And Bob is pissed. Gus had a wife and kids, and so does Bob. And even though he's new to the detective unit, Bob fights tooth and nail to be appointed the lead in this investigation. This is personal. So when Bob arrives on the scene, Gus is slumped against the car door. And at first glance, he looks dead. I mean, he's just been shot in the head. But miraculously, he's still breathing. The bullet went through Gus's brain but didn't kill him. He, he actually was able to call in his own shooting on his new radio before he passed out. I mean, he's lucky to be alive. And an emergency unit shows up to take Gus out of the patrol car. And just underneath Gus's right leg, Bob finds a business card. It's the first piece of evidence that they find at the scene, and it points right to the killer. It reads, G. Daniel Walker, Ad Biz Inc. This shocks me to my core. The guy literally had a business card with his name, and then he left it at the scene of the crime. This is shocking. Yeah. What is that? Arrogance or just stupidity? I don't know. But Bob starts digging, and it turns out that Ad Biz Inc., is a pretty successful endeavor. G. Daniel Walker is bringing in like 45 G's a year, which is pretty damn good in 1966. And he's a family man, too. He's got a wife and a kid of his own. But he's obviously not your average family man. No, 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 no. Walker has got a rap sheet. He's been convicted three times for armed robbery, and Bob ends up talking to his friends and neighbors and acquaintances who all tell him that Walker could charm the crown off of the queen. He's a good talker, a magnetic personality, and he is clever. And we're talking like English sense of the word clever. Like, he's smart. Bob hears something more, though, in these stories. They paint a picture of a man that is unsatisfied with his success. I mean, while this guy was successful, he stole his neighbor's tent and pitched it in his backyard, which is a little like leaving a business card at the scene of a crime. (laughs) He stole a helicopter for the fun of it. And as one of his friends put it, he liked to commit crimes for a lark. In at least one case, he gave his stolen bounty to charity, so he doesn't even need what he's stealing. In another of his armed robberies, he recited poetry to the cashier he was robbing. And even though he's served time in prison, Walker doesn't ever seem to learn his lesson. Or, you know, maybe there's no lesson to learn. He just thinks it's fun. But lest you believe this guy is Robin Hood, he is not. Because in addition to these armed robberies, Bob has found a young woman with a horrifying story. Late one night, Walker breaks into her Chicago apartment and shoots her boyfriend in the head. We've got an MO, folks. And before blood went everywhere, he grabs the man's head, he wraps it in a towel, and he throws him in his car. He then drives to O'Hare Airport. He kicks the body out of the car and he says, get out of Chicago and don't ever come back. So he then returns to this young woman's apartment and he says the same thing will happen to her if he catches her with another man. The quest for power and a knack for manipulation is a very scary combination in this person. And Walker never, ever answered for that crime. But Bob Swalwell is determined to see him behind bars for the attempted murder of his friend, Gus. It takes the police almost three years and help from G. Daniel Walker's wife, Edna, to finally get him. I guess the business card wasn't as much of a get as we can imagine. He proves to be as clever as his reputation suggests. Yeah, for a while it seems like he's just ahead of the police at every turn. And when the police tail Edna to get to him, he tails the police who are tailing her. It's a tale of two tailings. Wait, Quinn, isn't that the book that starts with, it was the best of traffic, it was the worst of traffic? (laughs) (laughs) He calls the Chicago cops to tell him where he'd been and where he's going next, just giving them a blueprint. It's very arrogant, and he's almost laughing while he does it. And Bob Swalwell knows Walker is having a great time just playing this game of jackal and mouse. It really makes me think, Do you think he left his business card there on purpose? To taunt them. For sure, it could have been part of his master plan all along. 
Because at one point, Swalwell comes within a few feet of capturing him at Walker's friend's house. While the police are searching the place, they literally come within arm's reach of Walker. He's hidden in a dark corner of the room, and the police don't see him. He later just delights, relishes in telling them how close they were to getting him. Ugh, Bob must be pissed. It isn't until June of 1969 that Walker's finally caught. And this scene is right out of a movie. There's a high-speed car chase through the streets of Chicago. And just when he's about to get caught, Walker jumps out of his car, bolts into a forest at the edge of the city. And just when the police think they've lost him, an old woman on the sidewalk points her cane into the forest preserve and tells them, He went that away. Walker then strips naked and hides behind a log, which, frankly, is a visual I cannot get out of my head. I guess he's trying to blend in with nature, but there are too many police there for him to escape. He's immediately apprehended and charged with attempted murder and aggravated battery. And exposing himself in public, I hope. (laughs) Walker represents himself at trial, and though that's usually a really bad idea for most criminals, it turns out that Walker is pretty capable. He claims that he accidentally shot Gus. He even has a wound. Well, listen, he's got a wound on his leg to prove that he'd accidentally shot himself in the leg at the same time. And he calls a doctor to testify that it is, in fact, a gunshot wound, not some sort of self-inflicted jab like Bob suspects it is. And in his closing arguments, he begs the jury not to separate a father from his son, which, you know, would really be heartbreaking if it wasn't just utter bullshit. And he is so good at charming the jury that it takes them seven hours to deliberate. But fortunately, they come to the right decision because they find Walker guilty and send him to prison for a range of 24 to 30 years. Bob Swalwell thought he was done with Walker once he finished that case, but Walker is really only just getting started. And a few years after he's sent to prison, Bob hears some rumblings about how that's going for Walker. Apparently, he is causing quite a fuss at the prison. Because Walker's got a lot of time to fill, and he fills it with his favorite hobby, which is representing his fellow inmates in appeals. He's petitioning the prison for better conditions as well. As Bob Swalwell would put it, he's literally driving everybody absolutely nuts. Yeah, he's driving him crazy. These are very loud protests that are escalating, even turning into a harassment suit against the prison. Lawyers and prison reformers descend on this case, and one of those attorneys is a woman named Marcy Permel. Tall, slender, dark hair, round glasses. Marcy meets with Walker at the prison, and immediately it becomes clear that he's interested in more than just an attorney-client relationship. And then Walker begins to have some medical issues that prison doctors just can't explain. There's blood in his urine, and they've run tests, but they don't know what's going on. So he's transferred to a Chicago hospital for some tests, and Marcy visits him there. Now, Walker's got a civilian roommate in his hospital room, this guy named Robert Petruziak. And he claims Walker is coming on to Marcy constantly. He's making moves, inappropriate touching alert, and Marcy knows this is not a good look for a lawyer. I mean, people are seeing this. His room is being watched day and night by three shifts of prison guards. But his condition still remains a mystery. There's still blood in his urine, but he he does refuse to let the doctors draw blood from him. He insists on doing that himself. Okay, I needed to put a little time out here. What? Yeah, He's I don't like, think Listen, it shouldn't be can't... DIY. It's not a DIY I don't project. Think there's no DIY project of blood drawing. That is truly the most insane thing I've heard. Listen, I'm no expert. I just watch Grey's Anatomy on occasion, and I'm sure that goes against so many protocols. Okay, so after a while, the prison guards who are there watching him... They've sort of found their favorite pastime is in the next room. They can watch TV in the lounge. And let's be honest, it's way more entertaining than the security footage that they're accustomed to watching. And Walker has told Petruziak, his roommate, that he and the guards have a nudge-nudge understanding. And the guards aren't paid very well by the prison, so money talks. 
few people in the hospital actually know that he's a criminal. It's kind of on a need-to-know basis, right? Like the, the doctors attending him, the nurses attending him know him, but they're not going to make a grand announcement. Hey, everyone, look here. We have a prisoner in our midst because I don't think they want the patients or doctors to worry about any of that. Right. You know? Mo convicts, mo problems. Exactly. Walker tells his roommate, Petrusiak, a lot of things, including the fact that he's a convict. And in turn, Petrusiak, you know, he's a civilian, maybe a little naive. Uh, he tells Walker arguably too much. He and his wife, Catherine, um, they notice how well coiffed Walker is. He's spending most mornings in just a cloud of hairspray, pulling a hot comb through his curly hair. You know, he's a good-looking guy, and Petrusiak jokes with him about letting Walker stay at his house once he gets out of prison. He jokes that they'll have to put bars on the guest room, of course. And Walker, who's, you know, always playing the charmer, just sort of laughs along with him. And this charming guy, he then asks, you know, Petrusiak, hey, like, where do you live? Petrusiak's like, oh, this town. And then he's like, no, 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 where do you live? He's like, oh, this street. And he's like, no, 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 what is your address? And then Petrusiak just tells him because... That's a normal question for a convicted criminal to be asking of you in the hospital. What is your exact address and what is the code to get into your garage? And also, where's your hide key? So on January 31st, 1973, just as the guards are changing shifts, Walker informs a nurse that he's just going to go downstairs to take a shower. I guess... The showers at this floor were not up to his standards. And frankly, it seems like he can just do whatever he wants whenever he wants. Um, So he gets in the elevator, presses the button, the doors close, and he never returns. It's only later that the doctors realize that Walker has actually been putting the blood from his own arm into his urine. It was just all a ruse for him to weaken the security and make his great escape. Detective Bob Swalwell picks the Walker case back up right where he left off. Seems pretty Could you imagine? depressing. <laughs> I mean, I, he's furious, right? He's I mean, gotta be pissed. This guy escaped. Are you kidding me? But you know, at the same time, he's probably a little impressed. I mean, there's really no underestimating this guy. And he starts out by visiting all of Walker's known haunts and friends to make sure that none of them are sheltering this fugitive. But nothing turns up. Walker has completely vanished. Three days after G. Daniel Walker escaped from the Illinois Research Hospital in Chicago, Robert Petrusiak is discharged from the hospital, and he and his wife return to their home, and they discover that actually someone's been living there in their absence. Yeah, their car's missing. Also, an electric typewriter, a cassette tape recorder, a camera, 18 credit cards. And strangely, when Catherine checks her bathroom, they're missing a can of hairspray, (gasps) shampoo, cream rinse, nail clippers, and scissors. I think we know who did it. When the police showed the Petrusiaks a picture of G. Daniel Walker, they immediately recognized him as their roommate in the hospital. And I don't know how quickly they admit, yeah, we told him our address, but it comes out. And at least 20 police departments in Illinois, including the FBI, get involved in the search for and investigation of G. Daniel Walker. But none of them are more focused than our hero, Bob Swalwell. But by the time he gets any worthwhile leads, Walker is long gone. At 10 a.m. on February 1st, Walker's just pecking away at his electric typewriter, probably the one he stole from his hospital roommate. Good morning, my love, he writes. While I did not sleep in your arms as planned, considering your absence, I did sleep rather well. Something about escaping which is tiring, I fear. He continues on for paragraphs more and has the letter delivered to Marcy Permal. He corresponds with Marcy regularly over the next month. He tells her about his comings and goings, and on occasion he makes brief calls to her law office, but all under the guise of an attorney-client-privileged relationship. The following Monday, Marcy receives a letter about a visit Walker made to her legal office. Quote, Which, believe me, was a funny scene, if you can picture yours truly prancing into the office to confront two secretarial types. 
In his letters, he practically screams, and by screams, it's all caps. He caps locks his electric typewriter, and he writes, I love you. I mean, he's crazy about Marcy. He tells her about how much he wants to be with her. It's unclear if Marcy ever writes him back, but considering how quickly he's moving from one place to another, I'd say it'd probably be hard for her to reach him. And Marcy, she's no dummy. She's a lawyer. She knows that this puts her in jeopardy. Bob Swalwell suspects she was involved in Walker's escape from the hospital. He thinks she's helping him, but every chance she gets, she tells Walker to turn himself in. She's his lawyer, so we have some attorney-client privilege at work here, but that doesn't extend to helping him while he's on the run. The more Walker professes his love to Marcy, the more she reminds him that their relationship is strictly professional. At first, Walker takes it as cover from the police. You know, she can't be seen returning his platitudes um, or gushing about her love for him. No doubt, I mean, her phone is being tapped. They're watching her every correspondence because they're trying to catch him. But after weeks of rejection and one-sided I love yous, he begins to sour on his feelings for Marcy. He writes, The time has come for you to stop promising me one thing and still leaving a bridge open for yourself back to the nice world. In for all or out to face a world that has you guilty already. Marcy doesn't really have a choice, though. She has to cooperate with the police. Every letter Walker sends gets passed to Bob Swalwell. And at first glance, they seem to paint just a picture of his travels. But it soon becomes clear that these letters are part of his game of jackal and mouse with the police. In one of the letters, he writes, Skied Loveland Basin this a.m. and then over to Vale and the big monster lion's head this afternoon. Busted my ass, but good too. Not only that, but ruined a new pair of $59.95 ski pants. Tell the boys at Illinois State Police to look out for a fugitive with a limp. In a February 15th letter, he livens up the chase with really a lot of specifics. He writes about eating dinner at the Oak Room in Denver and goes on to describe the entire multi-course meal, which involved, I mean, we're food people, so I got to tell you what it is. You got to tell me. You got to. He had four to five uh, martinis, oysters on the half shell, six of them, followed by turtle soup and sherry, a lovely salad with house dressing, bacon bits, grated cheese, etc., etc., hot shrimp, and then a 10-ounce steak beaten with pepper on both sides and cooked to medium rare with mushrooms, green peppers, onions, topped with brandy, and served flaming, accompanied by the normal. I don't know why there he gets a little, he withholds a little, just accompanied by the normal, you know, whatever that might the be. The normal, yeah trailed by four Irish coffees and a strong desire to take the blonde away from the guy at the next table who did not appreciate what he had. (laughs) Listen, did he also include how many visits he did to the bathroom? Because my God, that is a lot of liquids. Like, I love to hear what people ate, but that seems excessive. Way too many. Way too many. You know me. I love hearing the details of a good meal, but I do I do draw the line at the salad toppings. I don't want to know about your bacon bits, Daniel. When Swalwell and the FBI arrive in Denver, they're surprised at just how many restaurants are called the Oak Room. I guess Walker did his research and chose the most generic name. He's like, I was at McDonald's. <laughs> Swalwell doubts that Walker is still in town at this point, And listen, he's right. Because Walker is already long gone. He's in California with a new name and an identity he'd stolen from an Ann Arbor jewelry salesman named Taylor Wright. I hope that name's familiar to y'all from the first episode. In what Walker believed would be his last letter to Marcy, he writes, This may be my last letter from freedom, for I fear that tomorrow I must go into a district attorney's office and spill my guts to get a woman out of jail and charges of murder, all because she refuses to talk, thereby protecting me. In the letter, he continues telling Marcy the fake story that he concocted about the murder of Bill Ashlock, how Hope Masters was raped by an intruder and how he saved her the following day. And of course, in this story that he's telling, he's a hero. His only wish is that Marcy would have just come along with him for the ride like Hope did. But then again, that has not gone so well for Hope.
And this is when we return to where we left off on our last episode. Hope is sitting in her mother's house and she's on that gorgeous lemon velvet couch. There are FBI agents all around her and they tell her that she needs to keep Walker talking on the phone so they can track him. He can't know that she's cooperating with them. The phone rings and it's Walker. The conversation starts with formalities, you know, how's she doing? And, and then he starts to assure her that he's going to see her out of this mess. I mean, he is Mr. Fix-It after all. Hmm. She has several calls with him over the next few days, never keeping him on the line long enough, though, for the FBI to trace that call. But Walker does begin to grow a little suspicious and starts asking Hope, have they shown you any pictures? Knowing that if they have, she would know his identity as G. Daniel Walker. But whenever he asks, she deflects to something about the crime scene. But he keeps circling back. Have they shown you any pictures? And when she tries to deflect again, he cuts in sharply. Have they shown you any pictures? He's not going to drop it. Hope is cornered and she lies. She tells him no. And Walker sounds relieved and says, then they don't realize you don't know who I am. And immediately Hope feels guilty. But Walker seems to understand more than she realizes because just before he hangs up, he says, you take for so many years and all of a sudden, it's your turn to give. Whether or not Walker was ever planning to give himself up, we'll never know. One thing's for sure, it was a mistake to register under the name Taylor Wright when he got a motel room in North Hollywood. Bob Swalwell stakes him out with 17 other officers all night on March 10th. And at 10.25 in the morning on the 11th, when Walker finally pulls up in a Thunderbird sports car, they surround him, push him into his room, slam him against the wall, and Bob Swalwell pulls the gun out of Walker's waistband and thrusts his own gun into Walker's nostrils and tells him, I'll sleep good tonight. Finally. Walker is back in police custody, and Swalwell is not going to let him go. In Walker's car, they find a briefcase with Bill's financial information and pictures of Hope from the ranch. In a suitcase in the back seat, they find several turtlenecks, a ski cap, and a paperback edition of The Day of the Jackal. I assume there were a lot of annotations and post-it notes, Definitely. like taking notes about. It's his there was, study it was a, guide. It's his Bible. It's his <laughs> the apprehension of G. Daniel Walker was supposed to exonerate Hope. I mean, he was the man who could finally substantiate her story and he could save her. I mean, listen, he calls himself Mr. Fix-It. Isn't that what he's supposed to do? But now here she is. She's in court along with Walker. Both of them are on trial for the murder of Bill Ashlock. While Hope is out on bail, Walker is in a prison cell. They have separate lawyers, but it seems like they're going to be put on trial together, a joint trial. And as scary as that is for Hope, Walker's just having a ball. He always told Hope that he'd get out of the killing business and become a lawyer so they could be together. And now guess what? Making good on that, he's representing himself along with a court-appointed defense attorney, Jay Powell. The court even gives him a second prison cell to use as an office. And during the preliminary hearings, Hope is concerned that her co-defendant looks too guilty. So she tells her appointed lawyer to tell Walker that he should smile more. Which, by the way, anytime a woman tells a man to smile more, I like, I grow four sizes. You know, an angel gets their wings, frankly. His first move as co-counsel is to file a 52-page motion arguing that all of the evidence that they seized from his motel, his car, and his person when he was arrested was unlawfully taken. His argument is based on a principle called the fruit of the poison tree. But here's what this means for the case. Everything that the police seized was seized because police intercepted privileged communications between him and his lawyer. Marcy Permal, those love letters. Without those illegally intercepted letters, police never would have been able to get that evidence. Essentially, Walker is asking the judge to throw out a huge chunk of the evidence that incriminates him. And according to the brief, his arrest and indictment are all illegal. It's a remarkably bold request, but let's be honest. G. Daniel Walker is a remarkably bold guy. And the judge can't find any fault with this logic. The motion's granted in its entirety. All the evidence linking Walker to the murder of Bill Ashlock is suppressed. 
Meanwhile, Hope's lawyer Tom Breslin was surprised when this motion was filed. It was a really smart move, but not one likely to pay off in the long run. But now he realizes that G. Daniel Walker is in some ways a legal genius. Tom knows that this presents a fruitful opportunity. If all the evidence against Walker suppressed, then there's only one witness who could possibly help convict him, and that would be his co-defendant, Hope Masters. If Hope were to turn on Walker, she could be freed of charges. Everything would fall on Walker. So Tom brings this argument to the prosecution in order to make a deal on behalf of Hope. You know, if you let Hope off, she'll help you get and convict Walker for the crime. But the prosecution isn't totally eager to drop the first-degree murder charge against Hope. They then try to negotiate her down to a lesser charge in exchange for her testimony, but Tom outright rejects the offer, knowing he has a lot of power on his side. The prosecution knows that the evidence they have can only convict one of the two. It's either Walker or Hope. And it's clear that Walker is far more dangerous. So finally, they agree. They'll drop the charges against Hope in exchange for her testimony against Walker. Hope is free. One day before leaving the courtroom, Walker gets an envelope passed to Hope, and she opens it alone in her hotel that night. Inside is a note that says... It will be hard to smile with you gone from the case. There's an article in there about the DA office considering making their deal the other way around, where Walker would have gotten dismissed and testified against Hope, but he tells her he wouldn't do it. He includes a yellow rose inside this envelope. And yellow roses are often cited as meaning friendship and joy, but Hope has a recollection in this moment that they can also symbolize betrayal. Honey and Van are just thrilled by the dismissal. Honey weeps for joy. Her daughter is free. She can show her face at the country club again. Plus, uh, it's not so bad either that the madman who truly committed the crimes will be held accountable. But Hope is distraught. I mean, she appreciates what her lawyer has done for her, but she can't testify against Walker. She tells Tom, her lawyer, I said I would never, never testify against him, and I swore on the lives of my children. It appears Walker's influence still has a hold on her. And while Tom respects her commitment, he tells her that a promise made under duress doesn't count. He says, hope, you have to do it. It's your only chance. Meanwhile, in jail, without bail, Walker is filing more motions, his very favorite hobby, really, and he convinces the judge to allow him to come to court shackled only at the ankles, not at the wrists, so that the jury wouldn't be prejudiced against him while he sits behind the defendant's table. And because all of the evidence seized isn't admissible in trial, he convinces the court to allow him access to his extensive wardrobe of suits. Every day before court, the guards wheel in this rack of coats and pants and ties, and Walker has like a very share and clueless moment where he just gets to dress however he wants and he's dressed to the nines. He's in a fitted double-breasted suit and he's in fine shirts and ties. I mean, he looks respectable, even handsome, which is no doubt a ploy to manipulate the jury in his favor, which consists mostly of... Women. Women. (laughs) 98 witnesses are called in the course of this trial. Tom Masters being one of them, Hope's soon-to-be ex, testifies that he's never met Walker in his life. The real Taylor Wright comes to the stand to describe his assault by Walker and the theft of his identity. One of Hope's sons, the older one, testifies about the horrors of the days following Walker's arrival to their home and the fear of the organization just completely overwhelming his mom. And this is obviously completely heart-wrenching testimony from this child. Marcy Permel testifies to what she can without violating attorney-client privilege. And Walker himself testifies for two days, because that is how long it takes for him to get through his extremely convoluted version of the events leading up to the murder at the ranch house. 
Walker weaves this wild story that he was a longtime associate and friend of both Bill Ashlock and Hope Masters, and that he was acquainted with them well before that weekend at the ranch. And he adds these flourishes, like that Hope had a stash of illicit drugs at the ranch, and that Tom Masters, her ex's voice, was heard the day that Bill was killed at the ranch, and that the tapes that he sent to Hope were edited by her PI. He just goes on and on and on. I mean, the story is pretty nuts. But when it's Hope's turn at the stand, that's when the battle for his freedom truly begins. Like we said, if we didn't make this clear, this trial is really going to boil down to he said versus she said. So when Hope Masters sits down at the stand, she's sworn in on the Bible, and she promises to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Yet the middle part, the whole truth part, is a little tricky because even though Hope has agreed to testify against Walker— she still feels a sense of responsibility to her promise. I mean, he spared her life, and she feels indebted to him for that. So she tells the prosecutor everything that happens after the murder. G. Daniel Walker, under the fake name Taylor Wright, did threaten her life several times. He did wipe fingerprints from the scene of the crime. And she did lie about what took place when she returned to Beverly Hills with Walker. But she claims that she only really lied about one thing, the identity of the person at the ranch. Hope is a really good witness for the prosecution surrounding Bill's murder. But when the questions come about the night of the murder, her testimony becomes murkier. She testifies that when she woke up from her nap at the ranch, a gun was held in her mouth, but she couldn't see the person holding it. It was too dark. And the voice that spoke to her was unrecognizable. Even after she saw Bill's body and was raped by his killer, she still couldn't have identified him. It was pitch black. And after that, the man left the room for a long time. And then much later on, Walker came into the room. He looked at her and said, what's happening with you? As if he didn't know. Walker never said, I killed Bill. He only said, someone wants you dead. The only reason Walker left her alive, she says, is because she promised never to identify him as the killer, let alone testify against him in court. Yet, here she is. She glances at the defense table when Walker's smiling at her, a sly, knowing smile. She knows that when the prosecution is done questioning, he'll have his turn with her, and she is afraid of what he'll ask. I also think in a way, he still has a hold on her. I mean, she feels indebted to him for saving her life, and I think that's not something she can turn her back on him for. When the prosecution rests, Walker's eyes lock on hope. Court reporter Shirley Atkins later remarked that when G. Daniel Walker looks at you, he gives you his full attention. And at this point, his attention is locked on hope, maybe more than his attention has ever been locked on anyone. He begins in a light tone. Mrs. Masters, I'm going to have to ask you a few questions. Walker starts out by asking her about her clothes. Hope claimed in her testimony that her outfit was bloodstained from Bill that night, but when Walker asks her to examine the exhibit, it is clean, there are no stains. Which seems pretty damning, right? I mean, she keeps saying, this is what I was wearing, it should be covered in blood, and it's completely clean. Walker then asks what the intruder did when he got into the bedroom. And she says he put his hands around her throat. When asked if the intruder who raped her was Mr. Walker, she says, I think it well could have been Mr. Walker. Oh, this is so convoluted, the idea that he's speaking in third person. The idea that her rapist is interrogating her yes. is yes. bizarre. Well, what's even crazier is that because of the accusations of against him, he could not approach the stand, right? I mean, he had to stand behind the defense table to ask all of these questions in some way thinking that this physical space would help her in any way. I mean, he's she's still literally... going to be able to intimidate her no matter where he stands in that room. And ask her questions as the one who did it. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. When it's time for a recess, Hope's lawyer, Tom Breslin, grills her. You're going too easy on him, he says. But Hope says, he's going easy on me. 
He tells her she has to be tougher. She has to refer to Walker directly. You raped me. You threatened me, is what she should have said. After the recess, Hope's strength is bolstered by her team, and Walker's interrogation turns away from the crime and towards the aftermath. He gets Hope to say that he was good with her kids. You know, he made them breakfast, he bought her son a new coat, and he took the kids to and from school all by himself. And all the while, Hope was home, and there was a working phone in the house. So seemingly, she could have called the police at any time, whenever she wanted, right? But she chose not to. Walker then really steps over a line. He asks Hope about a cesarean scar on her abdomen, a very personal place which only one who has seen her naked would know about. And the prosecution objects, asking for relevance. And Walker says he's trying to show that the witness is being deceptive. He's trying to convince the jury that he had a consensual relationship with Hope going back a long time. And by pushing her buttons, he wants her to seem embarrassed and coy to the jury, rather than ashamed and disgusted. But I can tell you one thing. In this line of questioning, he made a huge mistake. Hope explodes. You saw me naked in the morning. You made me sit naked on the floor while you took a shower. I was not allowed any clothing or even to put a towel around me. You know it's true. But at this outburst, Walker sounded almost amused. Was the defendant Walker nude at the time? He asks. He was, Hope answered. And Walker grins. And you'd be able to tell us if the defendant Walker is circumcised or not, wouldn't you? Another objection ends that line of questioning. What in the world is he doing? Flirting? Threatening? Both? I think he's trying to prove that she's not a reliable witness who can't remember small details. And yes, that's a dick joke. (laughs) Well, Walker does seem to really enjoy this part more than the rest of his cross-examination. I think he likes it because it feels like a psychological game. And he is sort of attempting through cross-examination to humiliate Hope. Which compounded the fact that he is the person who raped her, also then trying to humiliate her. I just, this part of the story is so maddening and so upsetting. It like, it makes me see red. It seems odd that the guy that did it gets to be the guy that asked the question. It puts her in a really precarious situation where she's not having to point to the person who did this in the room. She's having to look them in the eye and say, it was you. That's a lot to ask. And as much as he tries, Walker doesn't prove to be very good against Hope. She was stronger than he anticipated. But still, she she does hesitate to identify Walker as Bill's killer. I mean, she never saw the face of the man who raped her. She only realized after the fact that it must have been Walker. So on the stand, you have to tell the truth. And so I think it really was the fact that she couldn't say with 100% certainty that it was him because she never saw his face. But who else would it be? Yeah, I mean, but it's still pretty weak testimony. I'm sure the prosecution is pissed they made that deal setting Hope free, and now she's coming in pretty lukewarm at best. When it comes time to send the jury into deliberations, the judge gives them instructions on jury procedure, just like all judges do. But then, before he sends them away, he announces he's going to make a statement to help them in their decision. None of the lawyers present have ever tried a case where a judge did anything like this. And this judge has never done anything like this before either. So he turns to the jury and says... It is my opinion that the defendant Walker's testimony contains so many contradictions, improbabilities, and fabrications that I personally would disregard it entirely and give it no weight whatsoever. He continues that all the defendant's witnesses were untrustworthy or mistaken in their testimony and that Walker is the only person other than Hope Masters who could have committed the murder and that he did it in order to steal Bill Ashlock's identity. This is a stunning statement. The judge essentially hands down the conviction himself. The jury... They obviously, they don't have to take the judge's word. It's just an opinion. But when they go into deliberations, it only takes six minutes to come to their verdict. 
But because of the strangeness of the situation, they decide to go get dinner and talk for a few hours before they return to the court to deliver it. I mean, sure, if I was on jury duty, I would get a free meal, too. The next morning, Hope wakes up in the La Costa Hotel. She sits on the edge of her bed. She lights up a cigarette. There's a knock on her door, and the waiter enters with a breakfast cart filled with coffee, juice, fresh flowers, and the morning paper. She reads the headline, Walker convicted in slaying of Adman, and she freezes. She feels the whole spectrum of emotions go through her. I mean, is she happy? Is she sad? Ashamed? Relieved? She's not really sure how to feel. Everyone else is ecstatic. Tom Breslin, Bob Swalwell, P.I. Jean Tinch, Honey, and Van, they're all so happy. I mean, their nightmare is over. Yeah, but even still, the cops who investigated the case are pretty confused. There's just so many contradictions, so many questions left unanswered. Why was there no blood found at the ranch? Where did Walker get the telescopic rifle? Was it Bill's? Or was it from the mysterious organization? Who were they? And what role did they play? Did they exist at all? Five years after Walker was convicted for the murder of Bill Ashlock, Detective Bob Swalwell has moved up in the ranks. His work on the Walker case earned him an award for merit and a banquet from his fellow officers, complete with a buffet and open bar. At least that's what I assume was included in the banquet. He's assigned to an elite unit protecting the governor of Illinois. Whenever I hear of elite unit, I cannot not think about law and order, but here we are. He gives his buddy Gus a framed photo of Walker naked, taken when he was arrested at the Hollywood Motel. I know it seems morbid, but I get it. I mean, this guy shot you in the head. Here he is naked. But maybe next Christmas, just maybe, he'll have it embroidered on a pillow or something. Attorney Marcy Permel joins a prestigious law firm in Chicago, and she later receives a prison letter from Walker. It's written in a kind tone, unlike the sort of wacky, erratic Walker she knew before. And it seems like Walker just wants a pen pal, wants to start up a conversation with her. She throws it in the trash. Good for you, Marcy. Attorney Tom Breslin leaves his law practice to become a public defender because, as Hope puts it, her case convinced him that the justice system isn't so just and that the best lawyers should work for the poorest defendants. And as for Hope, she earns a real estate license and finally starts taking financial care of herself. She and her stepdad, Van, grow closer, but he dies in 1978 of a heart attack. Honey thinks that Hope is irreparably scarred from the incident, but Hope feels like she's adjusted well. Her kids return to their normal lives, but Hope really never lets go of Walker. Hope ends up starting a prison correspondence with Walker. Her first letter ends... There's always hope. And they continue being pen pals. They write back and forth for a while. And she sends him a Star Wars comic addressed to G. Darth Walker. Good one, Hope. Along with a packet of romantic greeting cards for him to send out to his female friends. Hmm. You know what, Hope? Leave the puns to us. But their correspondence soon turns dark. Are we surprised? Walker seems to know more about what's going on on the outside world than he really should. He knows that Hope had lunch with a friend, and he writes her telling her the exact time and date of this lunch, which is very scary. Scarier than that, when Hope's daughter gets a new phone for her birthday, Walker calls her on it. And this is less than 24 hours after it's been installed or even listed. Oh, Hope's son, Keith, sleeps with a knife by his bed after that. Oh, those poor kids. Those poor children. Hope knows it's time for her to close this chapter of her life. And the only way she can do that is by visiting Walker in prison. Now listen, if I was her therapist, I would 100,000% advise against this. But here we are. Closure isn't a real thing, folks. Just your friendly reminder. But she goes to Sam Quentin prison to visit for two full days. And then she returns home. And even though Hope says she's adjusted, she's not exactly welcomed with open arms back into polite society. Because even though people 
recognize that she was found innocent in Bill's murder, they still view her with a sort of like side-eye glance. Likely, it was her unusual relationship with Walker that gives them pause. People wonder why Hope gave Walker just so much leeway in her life, and they can't figure out why Walker let her live if she really wasn't in on the murder. What Hope has to say about this is, it never seems to occur to anybody that maybe Walker let me live because he thought I was a good person, a useful person, a valuable human being. G. Daniel Walker is still alive. He's in prison, but he's alive. He's 86 years old. He'll be up for parole for the 14th time in 2023, next year. The psychology in this case, I could talk about it for days. And it does seem like it's a strange sort of fate that brought Walker and Hope together in the sense that she was the perfect mark for this con man because she just spent her whole life looking for someone to take care of her and to really see her. And okay, hear me out. Bizarrely, outside of raping her and killing her boyfriend... Walker made her feel those things. He made her at times feel like she was seen or protected. Um, but the relationship is not that simple. It's not con man tricks, naive, lonely housewife, because the other angle is that Walker could have fled. He had like a million chances to leave hope in the dust. And instead, he stuck around. He sends letters. He sends tapes. And because he doesn't cut and run, he ends up getting caught. And I think that's also what endears hope to him. And I think that's why she goes easy on him in the trial. And she feels like she owes him in some way that it's really hard for us as outsiders to totally comprehend. Here was this man who, like you said, quote, protected her. And she was already someone who relied on the kindness of strangers. And here he was. It reminds me of Mary McElroy, too, from our seventh episode, where the only person who can truly understand what she went through in those traumatic five days is the man who did it. Yeah. And it doesn't make sense to us because we just haven't been through that. Yeah. Trauma does really crazy things to people. Oh, it does make you hope Walker uh, sticks around in that prison because, um, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. do not want him Although out. I, I do not say, want him out. Being there has not actually really tied his hands. It just does certainly seem like he has ways to continue causing chaos from within his cell because look what he even managed to find out about Hope while he was in there. It's downright spooky. Oh, did we say our names at the top of this episode? Shoot. We got to edit that access out. access to podcasts? Oh, my, okay, okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Canary Bipama and Quirty Pusner, and you've been listening to Chrome of a Lifeline. Does that work? I hope so. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the book A Death in California by Joan Barthel and an article in the New York Times titled The Case of the Lady and the Killer. We highly recommend you check out these sources if you'd like to learn more. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. Kami Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.